can we make those synapse connections? It's going to take the entire team. It's a team effort to get from head to heart. I, I, in our organization, we are not capable of that. And I'll tell you that right now. We are not. It has to be a team effort. Welcome, everybody, to Equality Podcast Season 2, Episode 11. We are pleased to join Dr. Luke, Dr. Lucas Chesla, Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt, PMP, and everything else under the sun, CEO and co-founder of Value Added 616. And what I love about Dr. Luke and what he brings to LinkedIn and the online community is his passion for helping people learn. And today, we have a pretty interesting topic. I think you're going to enjoy the difference between training and education. And if you haven't thought about the difference before, you might be a victim. So Dr. Luke, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you guys having me here. So Jake, John, nice to meet you guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, we're really excited to have you on because a lot of what I do in my role is just helping people to understand. Um, the sexy part of lean, right? It, depending on how nerdy you are, has to do with like complex math and like modeling. And I can't believe I found this awesome solution, but it has to have legs, right? And most of the time, all of that doesn't matter because the people doing the work aren't executing the simplest tools that we have. And until we fix that problem, why am I gonna waste my time on mixed model constrained optimization for your supply chain? You're never going to make it happen, right? Even, the, even that wording is too complex for my brain, first of all. <laughs> right. But that's a great point. But even getting back to the, you know, the, the kind of root cause of that is the reason they're running off and using models immediately after learning some Six Sigma techniques. You know, they'll come from our classroom like ours and go, oh, yeah, let's just go immediately jump into a DOE with like eight factors and eight <laughs> layers. You go, hey, timeout, Tiger. All we needed was like two rounds of PDCA here. We could have been done like, right. you know, six weeks ago. So that that in turn leads right back to the topic of our conversation is because they walk out with some training don't know what to do with it to grow those legs they've got to be educated just like we train kids right as they're learning how to walk with their legs that's what the parents are for so we've, we've got to help them through the training journey and through the education journey which takes us right back to your point so i love that and i love that you brought up you know the difference between training and education and what i enjoy is when somebody who's you know, dedicated to a craft and sort of an expert in their field gets me thinking about something I haven't thought before. And that's kind of the effect that, you know, you had on me. And so I got, uh, you know, really geeked out about this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What is the difference between training and education? And why is it important for us to recognize that? So some of the discussions I've been having with some folks lately, some other some other master black belts, you know, we've we've kind of had a little think tank going on for a while. And this discussion has been extremely hot between all of us. And when we are training people, I, I granted people do say, they say, oh, I do training and consulting and all this other stuff, right? Well, I'm going to be a straight shooter. We are trainers and I love to be trainer. I love to be a trainer and I don't educate them. I try the best you can. I, I try the best I can in a classroom, but that's not what I'm there for. So I actually train them on the tools. I, you know, train them on the methodologies and the frameworks, but we work with a series of coaches. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, with one of the government agencies we work with, we in the classroom teach them how to use 
a charter, let's say, and then we walk them through an example, we have them fill a charter out, we, you know, work on feedback on that charter. But really what I've just done is I've trained them. Now, when they go back to the coaches at this government agency, they've got a cadre of coaches. I and my team, we get with those coaches after all of our courses with their folks and we say, okay, here's what we felt like you, this particular class was a little bit weak, uh, meaning like that was probably due to us, like uh, maybe MSA was a little weak that week. So I'm not saying the students, so anybody listening, I'm talking about maybe I was weak on MSA, I missed out on a gauge R&R because time was under a crunch. So. I show them the gauge R&R, I show them the charter, I, you know, we show them the, the risk tools, but they go back and implement them with their, uh, you know, in the, the actual live environment, their practitioners, they're being educated with their coaches back in their workplace. So that's kind of the long way to at least get the, you know, the, the framework for what we're working with here today. So the definitions we, we have are the classroom, I train them even with the simulation and doing in the classroom, I'm still doing nothing more than training them. I'm literally giving them a shotgun of an entire body of knowledge, a green belt body of knowledge in a week. That's a shotgun blast in the face that nobody can handle. Then what happens is they take that back to their coaches where they can be educated. There's brown bag lunches. There's one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions from those master black belts. That's where they're learning to take projects in the real world and get educated. So that's the difference. And I just want to make that clear. So we know there's classroom training, and then practitioner education. So basically, if you look at knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and splitting all those up. Good. I can't wait to dive into that a little bit more, but maybe a high-level overview or, or metaphor, you know, for our folks that are listening. Um, the surgeon that does open-heart surgery, you know, reads a book on how to do open-heart surgery, and I don't know maybe they're watching videos and stuff nowadays something modern um that's training that's not the guy that you want cutting your heart open right there has to be an education component as well uh the practice the internalization the experience uh including what can go wrong you know the the textbook typically has like the three failure modes that are most common um and and that's about it you know, a textbook can never cover real life, right? So training and education, and you have this progression, right? That kind of starts with maybe the head and ends up deeper than that. Talk to me about that a little bit. So where what it looks like essentially when you're kind of the crawl walk run or the analogy, but I, I do have to give a shout out to Dr. Scott Bonnie for this one. When you said you wanted to go with a metaphor, he used to tell me this right here. He's, he's my mentor. He'd go, so Luke, I can take you over to a pool and I can have you read through a manual and learn how to swim. But if you go in and swim, you're going to drown. Okay. He says, I can even get you in the locker room and have you doing the breaststroke and all these other strokes or freestyle on the bench in the locker room as you're learning. And you still haven't learned. If I throw you in a pool, you're going to drown. So he, he walked me through it. Then he said, but if I walk out there with you and I'm holding my hands kind of under your, your belly and your thighs, and I'm kind of helping you along like a kid and you're learning how to swim and there's kind of that safety until you're ready. It, it was just, I, I, you, when you said to use the analogy, Scott Bonney, Dr. Scott Bonney over at uh, Accenture Federal, he, he says that all the time. I love that. It's hilarious. But yeah, back to I the, like to back, back like to the topic one. of, uh, you know, kind of head to heart. So taking it from your head, you know, you're sitting there, I mean, you got to think about it from the perspective of the student every time. And, and they're sitting in a classroom and the second they walk in, they're overwhelmed because hearing about Lean Six Sigma can be pretty scary because we've misconstrued it. I mean, it's, it's so 
kind of overdone and yet underdone. You know, I know that's cliched and all weird to say, but it's so jacked up in our industry and, you know, not there's, there's lack of standards everywhere. So they hear lean six Sigma, they say, Oh yes, this is good for my organization, but they sit in there and their eyeballs are as big as golf balls, you know, when they walk into the classroom, I mean, you're not going to get much past the, the uh, training piece of it because all I have time to do in the classroom with them is show demonstration me show, and then demonstrate it to them and have them fill one out. That, that in no way takes it past the head knowledge. That I hope they can walk away with enough to just say, I got a steel trap memory. I can at least you know replicate that if I have to. But that replication has no synapse connections up here. Just because they can redo a risk register or a risk mitigation planner for me at Pick a Tool doesn't mean they know what exactly they just did again. So I've trained them to be able to maybe replicate that if I'm lucky by rote memorization and just blah, regurgitating it back onto a piece of paper. I know in class, he said that a few of the risks that are common to every project are these. Let's write those down and we sound smart. Yeah, you do, but that synapse connection, you, you don't exactly know why you just did that, right? So then you move on to the education part and they get that coaching, they get that real world, they get to see why that those risks I say are pretty common might not fit their particular project because their other their master black belt also is there to, to say you know that doesn't quite make sense here with what we're working on so they get educated they move up a level they build some wisdom that comes from experience and practical knowledge right so there's a there's just that difference and in, in, in the classroom like i said moving it from their head to their heart but it's not just a with any client here's the thing it's not just a, a me then to them it has to be an integrated systems of a system of checks and balances, meaning I communicate with their coaches while every course is going on with every cohort of students. Just like with any of our clients, that's how it works. You say, if this is going to work, you have coaches on your side, but there's no you and us. I need to know your exact tools that you're using. You need to know exactly what my curriculum looks like, and we need to you know, be in complete concert so we can, we can actually get them from head to heart, you know, and out the hands to, to being able to use it. So how can we make those synapse connections? It's going to take the entire team between whether it's consulting or the training people and, you know, who you're working with your client. So it's a team effort to get from head to heart. I, I, in our organization, we are not capable of that. And I'll tell you that right now, we are not, it has to be a team effort. That, that is quite a bit to unpack. Let me ask, just from fantastic explanation, by the way, of what it is you do. Why do you think it's so common in our industry that some of those basic fundamentals are vary so widely from consultant A to consultant B? What do you think is happening there? Okay, I'm going to use one word that if any, when, well, not if when all my students hear this in the future, they're going to know exactly. I use the word dogmatic. Okay, here's the deal. We have our we have our experiences, right? I've worked with uh, you know almost tons of different industries to include manufacturing, but I'm weak in manufacturing, right? That'd be about my weakest realm. More, I'm more in, in like bank and government. But the point being, why I say dogmatic is because I have different experiences than you do. I have a I have DOE experience different than you do. Sometimes I use it, sometimes I don't. You may use it all the time. 
now I'm getting to my point, And that is because you have used a certain tool so many times or this particular way, or you found a way that works for you, you're, you're now magically dogmatic about it. Means you now, when you, every time you move forward, you're gonna tell people this, this is exactly how we do that tool. And it has to be done this way, or this is why, yeah, Famias aren't that good, by the way, that's blasphemy, but Famias aren't that good, you know, and, and here's why, because in our organization, we, we use this tool. And I see this all the time and I go, hey, again, time out, Tiger. Let, let's just stop because they all hear me say this a hundred times is I go, I am the least dogmatic person you'll ever meet. If you find a better way to use it, good. You find a better way to tool. We have to build a process improvement process that is robust enough to get us from through from defined through control or PDCA, whatever, all the way from the, the identifying the problem through solving the problem, but flexible enough for us to make up our minds and be creative while we're in there. And what happens is we get so freaking dogmatic. People like people I work with, they, they get the, the, those little letters like DR in front of their name and magically, I know everything, so this is how you do it. And then there's these arguments and infighting. And you're like, listen, uh, well, I don't wanna say bad things. All right, listen, idiot, that's not true at all. Because just because I've written that so many times on LinkedIn, I'll say, you've done it that way. And I've done it eight times the other way. Don't come out with a title on a blog that says, you can't use for me or for me is dead. And you go, maybe it was where you worked. Agreed. I'll say that maybe from, and again, I'm picking on for me, just because it's rolling off my tongue. But in my line of work, I can tell you that when I'm working in the banking and when I'm working in banking and government, if you don't do a FAMIA, you should get your hand slapped. So, you know, different worlds and we get so freaking dogmatic and wrapped up and I know better than you. And that's why it's falling apart in industry. I, I'm not kidding you, I see it all the time. Yeah, I, I second that. I've noticed, um, I think it's a sociological phenomenon that's by no means limited to uh, our industry or industry at all, but it's this uh, anti-civil approach between human beings online where uh, we seem to have accepted that the proliferation of presence and information online means that we have to uh, please the algorithm gods in order to have influence and that requires uh, being controversial and confrontational. Uh, there are no um, algorithms that reward cooperation. And the reason for that is that's how we are as humans. We have a bias uh, implicitly um, to look out for danger. Um, that's, you know, an evolutionary adaptation. And there's, you know, whole documentaries and stories, and you can read about the way that um, social media in particular has hired PhDs in neuroscience to get their algorithms to get people addicted to their shit, right? Um, and it's all based on innate human human behavior. And so I've seen, you know, a lot of this where people are really just trying to get clicks. They don't care uh, how stupid what they're saying is. They kind of did that on purpose. You know, they don't care if it's negative interaction. If it's interaction, it's good for them, right? Um, so we can debate, you know, how quickly this leads us to Armageddon or not. But in the meantime, uh, you got about 90 seconds, <laughs> right? In the meantime, if we understand theory, that allows us to apply it in meaningful ways.
that create real business change. And for me, and I think for you, we're in the business of helping businesses improve their business and see real change. And they kind of don't give a shit about the little infighting over here between, you know, in the shallow end of the talent pool. They want to see real, real business results. And there seems to me to be a pretty high correlation, you know, between people that actually understand the theory. Um, those are the people that are the least dogmatic. Right? The more dogmatic a person is, uh, the less their breadth of experience and the the less that the theory has sort of uh, sunk into their consciousness. They're usually pretty good at tools um, and specific applications, but you, you kind of can't have a deep knowledge of the subject matter and be dogmatic at the same time because they don't go together. Well, it's that simple cliche that, you know, the more education you get, the more you realize how little you truly know. I mean, and that's that's why the people who know more or more experienced, excuse me, generally aren't as dogmatic because you're like, well, wait a minute, there's eight used to, oh, again, my for my fear, there, for me, uh, there's three different phases or all five phases I can use the FAMIA. Sometimes I guess if I'm in a hurry, maybe I don't need it. If I have a good risk tool up front anyway, well, maybe we just skip, you know, that. so point being, dogmatic is going to slow you down. And the whole, the whole, the whole bickering thing, I, I see that stuff too. I, I mean, it just, it drives me crazy. I mean, I don't understand why, I mean, there's a body, there's bodies of knowledge that are pretty much widely accepted ASQ DOD kind of being top dogs. And it's like, you know, why are we, why are we reinventing the wheel or pretending like, Oh, I, you know, I'm a new person that stepped up and now I have a magic new body of knowledge. And you're like, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I post like, something what? funny and I'm doing the I'm doing the hardest thing. I'm taking the driest subject on earth and trying to make it funny in some shape or form on LinkedIn. And I will post something that is hardcore body of knowledge, took it, made it funny, and I mean, and I will controversy in the comments. I will get people that inherently disagree with how a tool is supposed to be used or applied. I'm like, you couldn't be missing this point any 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 farther. <laughs> Yeah, yep. I see that all the time. Like I said, that, that the, in the controversy, it's the same thing with news. I mean, without getting a long discussion about that, you know, and they say that's what sells. And and so, yeah. like you said, that's what makes you you an influencer. And I just the only time I the only time I do approach people kind of somewhat a little negatively is after I've tried a couple of times is when they are being dogmatic. I'm like, yeah. you're sitting here like the guy who went off about five S said you know, stop saying it's a clean desk. And I said, I know, I said, I know that's about driving value, but a clean desk, if it gets you papers faster and stuff in your particular job, that is driving value. And he literally was arguing about a clean desk cannot be 5S. And I go, I'm sorry, man, that's just foolish. <laughs> right. I mean, is it sorting and shining and, you know, yeah. are you going through all your 5Ss? Oh, don't, don't are you, get me are you started. Adding value? Are you adding value is the key with a 5S, right? I mean, it's about adding value, not just a clean desk, but it, it's about, did it drive value don't get me started with the categorization i have so many times is that transportation or is that over processing let me and then they'll sit and argue about which letter of tim woods it belongs to instead of just solving the problem yeah, yeah you go just slap it up on a board figure it out later right right yeah well typically those you know the armchair quarterback thing um it, it's okay because those aren't people that are actually doing the work Right. When you talk to professionals that are actually engaged in making businesses better, they don't have time for that crap. Right. So, you know, if, if uh, my buddy over here wants to critique Tom Brady on Monday, he is welcome to do that because he ain't playing in the NFL. You know, whatever opinion he wants, it doesn't yeah. matter. You know? 
I actually had a post because I don't post all that often. I did it last year. And I, I was thinking to myself, as I'm running a business and we're growing our team and landing contracts, I go, you know, I was sitting here thinking to myself, like there's all these influencers. And what I don't understand is how do you have time? If you're serving clients, I can't even breathe. I'm like, right. we've been booked for eight straight months. And then I can't even I can't even get onto LinkedIn until the evening, unless I maybe at lunch just to see if anybody, you know, did something. But I'm like, how do you have time to sit here and post all freaking day? Like, right. what are you doing? And then you you're arguing. Shining. What's that? You want shining evidence of that? I tagged uh, Dr. Lucas here in a post and a full day went by before he interacted with it at all. I do, I, <laughs> that just happened this week. I can't see wow. that stuff until night. I mean, we're in the classroom. We go like green, black, green, black, green, black, you know, yeah, all you're year kinda, long. You're kind of slacking there, buddy. I mean, so I, you, you got to get on top of that. I, and I hear the funny thing is, is I actually hear that from people like you have to be active on LinkedIn. You have to be doing this. And I'm going, I'm freaking making bank yeah. serving clients. Do you think right. I freaking care about LinkedIn? You're like, you have a bunch of lean practitioners arguing with each other. Is that guy going to get me a job? Right. If he's right. no value, like if he's just arguing with me because he has no job, yeah. then he's dragging me down. So I did. I just like I kind of gave up on that thing. I'm like, it's like a you know bright light shining into the face of other lights. You know, yeah. staring each other, and you're like, if you're all trying to do better for the world and do better for uh, you know workplace, go then either go back to your job. You shouldn't be on the computer for one or two. If you're a consultant, you might want to spend more time landing clients than arguing with yeah. other lean practitioners. Yeah, I suspect that uh, some of these folks aren't maybe uh, actually consulting. Uh, yeah, just, there's just an inverse relationship. Work. There's an inverse relationship between LinkedIn activity and what they actually have jobs or not. Right, right, yeah. I guess by that uh, note, I'm unemployed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, yeah, um, but I think that, you know, what, what kind of started this uh, tangent and to, to bring it back home, there's a lot of variation out there in how we talk about stuff and how we deal with problems. And, and that's actually a good thing, I think. And oh, yeah. in fact, um, when I'm hiring uh, higher level, let's say middle management, um, I, I typically won't hire somebody who uh, doesn't have background in more than one industry. Um, so for example, if I'm in uh, logistics, right, let's say it's a uh, parts warehouse in automotive supply chain, um, I'm looking for somebody that managed something in retail, um, managed something in uh, oil and natural gas, right? Because they're going to have that uh, business operating system, you know, lean background in a different industry. And as soon as they see our BOS, they're going to, they're going to get it. It's going to click. Hey, they're doing the same thing I was doing over here. They're just using different graphics or, or measuring a different thing or whatever. And they'll be able to synthesize their experience and knowledge. And that's when the theory starts to take root. When you're in the same company, especially for years and you learned lean. And I've worked with a lot of people like this and have all the respect in the world for them. Uh, very difficult for them to internalize it because they've been working for a company like Honeywell for 20 years. All they know is the Honeywell operating system. And because of that, you know, the, the, the tools and methodology blur the underlying theory. But if they were just for three months to hop over here 
you know, and, and work for a different company, they'd be doing the same kinds of things, but it would look different and sound different. And that's when it would click and they'd say, wait a minute, now I get it. We're trying to do this. And my instantiation looks like this. This guy's instantiation looks like that. But now I understand what's underneath that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that I, we, we see that, unfortunately, all over the place. So yeah, I'm trying to think of a kind of a response for that. I mean, you just laid it. You laid a pretty solid framework because I agree. I agree with about every point you have on that one. But that's kind of where the difference between training and education and knowledge comes into play, right? You can get training on tools and even methodology. That doesn't mean you've internalized the theory. You don't that, have a there you go. knowledge, right? That's, and, and see now when you go kind of, let's bouncing it back and forth with the training and education is, so employers or clients or whatever they are to you at that point, and you're com they're coming in for training, therein lies another kind of fissure in our industry too is certification versus trained type thing too because people want to come to our course all the time and send you know say a green belt with zero projects zero experience to a black belt course um and, and want them to be certified and you go uh okay well not only is there a body of knowledge but you don't have a true understanding of what it is we actually do here um, so I, I, again, there's a huge separation there too, that we feel from, from employers and getting, uh, buy-in from the top and really having them understand the program that they're paying for, or that they're internalizing, that's adding value to their organization. And I think a lot of times, because everything is so freaking fast in this day and age, you know, it's like every, every problem we have to solve is by when yesterday, right? Not tomorrow. It's by today. Well, it's the same thing with the training pipelines that we have, which is why I want to touch on the asynchronous and synchronous a little bit too with the training and, uh, and education piece too, is those, those same employers that are sending us, you know, their, their people, they, they just want problems solved. I don't even care, know if, if some, some folks understand that when you empower your folks, that they're going to need barriers removed. They're going to need involvement. They're going to need for you to understand what it is that they're doing. And again, that can't, that can't happen until we start to educate the whole, you know, the whole chain of command, essentially. So again, that leaves us as trainers, as trainers. And that's not a negative. That's what our job is. So we train but we try to train also their educators, if that makes sense too. So not only is a good consultant a trainer, they're training, they're training the trainers to educate. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it's, so it's and, kind of all buy-in. Yeah, ab absolutely. And the no amount of training in the universe is going to give you ultimate clarity around your processes and what you can do. And it's also not going to you know, show you your value proposition at work. So I can take all the infinite amount of training anyone on earth, and I still can't do anything more unless my boss above me is actively removing barriers, actively you know, challenging me to solve problems and facilitating that process along. And if we're not actively encouraging that, by default, we're discouraging it. Well, it's actively challenging. Yeah, I, I love that. Actively challenging you and actively empowering you. You said actively challenging me to solve problems. Yep. But also actively empowering, which means they're removing the barriers or allowing you to do your thing. And so the training and education piece, again, I'm in a classroom and I'm here, I'm online with people. We run virtual Sims. We give them as much of the instructional aspect as we can in, 
everything that we do, but the true education has to come from back in the organization, or even if you're, you know, in a L&D, a learning and development department for, you know, say the, the bank we work with, for instance, you know, the big L&D, and you got to go back and work with the L&D department, but department, but they have to be there to kind of love on you, coach you along, help you, you know, and help you with everything from the people skills to the technical skills so that we can we can bridge that gap between training and education. It can't just be the students in the classroom to the students back in the work area. That's just not, it's that's gonna be a terrible way to do it. It's gotta be the students and then they go back because they are just, usually they come out of there like race cars on the line, right? They're just revving their engines to go now. So leadership, if they don't know how to support or what to do to help them to get the education, can do, we'll say to, continue their education, hence the phrase continuing education, right? So if they're going to continue their education, leadership has to be bought in. Leadership has to know their role in educating. So even though we're training over here, again, that's why I keep coming back to this full circle. It's a whole organizational effort to move from training to education, right? From head to heart out in your hands when you're working on it. So whole it's it's everybody involved and and some leaders fortunately it's not really folks we work with no joke i'm not just saying that for our clients on here but i have worked in the past with clients that are no longer ours where their leadership doesn't understand that and they basically are just like all right luke train our people so they can solve all our problems and you get that attitude and you go well um are you going to be an active participant well they're they're, we're, we're sending them to this training so they should be able to solve the problems and i go Nope, that ain't happening. You're, they're not going to, I mean, they're going to try to solve everything, but everything they come up with, you know, and these creative and wild ideas that we encourage, you're going to have no idea that you'll think it came out of left field. It's just weird, but yet they put a lot of time, rigor, effort into, you know, getting to that, that solution or that idea. And you'll have no idea how to support it, how to support them, how to empower them, how to help them to, you know, when they do get from a, optimized process to the automation side of the house. Where are you in all of this leader? So again, training to education is a full team effort. It's not just a consultant. It's not just the coaches. It's not just the students. It's not just leadership. It's all four of them together. That's so let's do a little bit of synthetic application here uh, for our audience. So you, what you're telling me is if I hire somebody to unload a trailer, I can't sit them in the conference room and go through a PowerPoint and then kick them out on the floor and expect them to unload that trailer properly. Is that what you're saying? That's what, that's what companies have in the past asked us to do. Essentially <laughs> they've come to us and they, we, you know, if somebody will come out of their, they'll, they'll go to our, our training, whether it's green or black. And they're like, well, good. Now they should be saving us millions of dollars and doing a, B and C. And they're like, they have, they don't even know what that process is. They have no support. I'm like, it just, it's almost, it's, it's laughable, but yet it's our industry. So I don't laugh. I actually get mad, but I mean, I, yeah. I sadistically is, laugh. I sadistically laugh as well. And there's nothing I do on LinkedIn that is not like this deep sense of pain on the inside as I put it out in the world. <laughs> that, I'm just a laughing where, clown. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm crying on the inside though. So on the, uh, intellectual side, right? There's sort of this level that's a facts or data uh, sort of level. And then that evolves into a knowledge level. So not to get too deep into like knowledge theory, but um, that's sort of the application of data to specific structures, right? So you're starting to internalize 
uh, the theory and be able to use the data. And then there's a deeper level, right, that we typically call wisdom. And sometimes that's as simple as, you know, the example you used earlier. Do I really need an eight-factor DOE or can I just PDCA it a couple of times, right? Now, being able to do the DOE and know this tool will work is at the knowledge level. And understanding the PDCA and how to do it, right, that's at the knowledge level. But there's a deeper level where you kind of compare and contrast and understand I can get what I want effectively this way instead of this way. Fair? You know, so let me let me use the walkthrough of how we teach a typical, you know, basic stats day. So how, you know, how basically how there's like, you know, 10 hours, 10 plus hours of stats in your one week of green belt. When you're working through and we're initially giving them the information, right? As we're walking through and we're building through, it's almost like we're kind of getting to the education piece. When you walk through, I'll walk you through green and black, you know, just using the stats. So we give them information, which means we talk about, you know, how do we get to, you know, what standard deviation um, or we actually even step back location, variation and shape, right? Measures a central tendency, you know, all that type of stuff. Then we build on that and eventually we get to p-values, the probability values. Then we get to confidence intervals and confidence levels and z-scores and t-scores, right? So during that time, we're giving them information and information and information. And then what we do is we use our simulation, which can replicate a little bit of real life because we've, you know, developed this thing with a, it's a video game we've developed at our organization. And then they get to, to get to turn that information into some data. Like we literally would collect information on our cycle times and our lead times and our errors and all these things. So we have all this information that we now need to change into data, right? So we've got to put some context to this data, which means then we can take it and we could say, what is this data telling us so when we take information and turn it to data now it means something to us it means you know how capable am i right normality stability capability right the kind of the key one so am i stable am i capable those types of things but that's not the main point i'm after here so i walk them through and we go so it goes from you know you get that information you get that data that data becomes useful with context then you move on to it, you're, you move on to the next level, say black belt, then you're collecting data and into the more, you know, the deeper level statistics, your chi-square, your ANOVAs, and you're, you're really getting detailed on what is this data, what's the storyline it's trying to tell. Not only am I looking at information, then giving it some context. Now, can I interpret that data? Then, then after I've interpreted that data, then can I translate? So translate and interpret are really good. Maybe even flip, depending on the context, Maybe you translate the data if that's the line of work you prefer, and then you tr and then you interpret it for who your audience is, or if you're interpreting the data and then you're translating it to your audience. I don't care about the words. Again, I'm not dogmatic, but the idea is just like in in learning. That's how it works. We go from getting this information, then information gets some context to it, some a little bit of touchable, tangible context. We get to play with it. We get to feel it. We get to experience it right and it tells us a beautiful story so then it goes from information to data then when it goes from data just like classroom goes from we teach you you do the simulation then you go out to the real world that's like taking that data putting into real world use having a little bit of coaching over you you know some other master black belt or black belt or whatever and helping you to translate and interpret it 
right? So then when you do that, that's where that wisdom comes in. That wisdom comes from where? Experience. So that's essentially the storyline that we have with our statistics too. It's the same way. It follows the same pattern as how the student actually walks through. They come in, they get blasted with information. They get the simulation, which ties the concepts together. But as John used a term, they don't necessarily like internalize it. They can play with it a little bit, but let's be honest, it's a sim, it's a classroom. They're just able to, to, to add to, uh, they're basically giving a few con contextual notes to the memorization. So it's not just spitting out and rote memorization, it's memorization with some syn you know, synapse connections up here. So it gives it a little bit of meat, something they can hang on to moving forward. Then just like with, it's like Black Belt then moves on to that, that education piece when you're tying that in. Because then you got to take it and really build this story. What am I trying to actually do? How do we feel it? What about the real world? What about the people that are involved here? How do we make sure that this improvement doesn't hurt them? Right? That's that's the experience. That's the the wisdom. That's the knowledge. That's being educated. So I'll kind of back off my tirade now. I get Boom. a little bit passionate about this stuff. So. Boom. <laughs> so I get... Before I'm I'm in love with the conversation. I'm sure John is. Before some of our audience members fall asleep, give me a little bit about why you have such a passion for it because i just love listening to the way you talk and it comes across like a very kindred spirit and i'm so, interested to know why one of the passions i have and, and it's again the reason you're here is you love to save businesses time and money but i'm gonna tell you this yeah okay i do that's a, that's great i mean that's that'd be my job my passion is because Every practitioner that is going to step foot into our classroom is going to step out of there and be bigger, faster, smarter, and stronger than I ever was. That's why I'm so passionate about the, tr the training and facilitating that we do. Because when they walk out, when they have an aha moment, hey, I had stats in my master's class and couldn't understand it, but now I, now I get it. That, that's it. When that happens right there, and then when they become master black belts, and I can't even speak their language anymore because they're so, I mean, they're solving problems I couldn't even, you know, put my finger on the pulse of. I'm like, hey, that's it right there. So that's what drives me. I mean, I, I love being in the classroom. I love, I just love to, I learn, put it this way, I love people. And the phrase I use is, I love to learn so that I can teach. That's why I read stats books like people read novels. I love them. I just want, I want to be able to pass that information on. So I learn so that I can teach that information. See, Jake, I told you I wasn't the only one that reads university text textbooks for fun. So I, I do. I, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I just downloaded two more stats books. I ripped through one of them in a week and I've got the next one I'm working on now. I enjoyed uh, measures of success by uh, Mark Graben. Um, basically the the lesson there for uh leaders and you know he was able to express it better than i am which is probably why i enjoyed the book was the the purpose of your metrics is actually to constrain your behavior that's hmm. what it's there for as a leader the purpose of the metrics is to keep you from acting right um makes sense if you think about like control limits and that sort of thing mm -hmm. but it was a pretty pretty good book on like how do you link the data or the stats you know to your behavior like what's the connection there and super useful too because you know sometimes when we're maybe on more of the engineering side of the business improvement you know i'm a black belt i'm going to go run a project and, and solve problems um i'm thinking about you know the data 
and what does it mean and how should I behave? Um, we experience sometimes like a leader or multiple leaders and sometimes there are senior leaders like SVPs just shitting all over everything because they're like, you know, squirrels, like there's a nut over there, there's a nut over there. And you're like, try to focus, right? This is what we're doing to improve the process, to create value. Um, we have a charter, like there's a reason for the structure that we have, like in, in Lean Six Sigma projects. And one of, one of the big reasons for the structure is to keep you from, keep you out, stop acting, you know? Um, so, so yeah, what's out is just as important as what's in. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen Martin. Um, focus, right? What you say yes to also means you're saying no to something else. Um, but yeah, so I think we've all experienced that, right? Where we put uh, a lot of time and effort in to create value for the business. And then, you know, some director steps in and just starts shitting the bed. So tell me a little bit about that. You know, don't throw anybody under the bus, but make it juicy. So, uh, yeah, you so try to think of one of the examples we have. Um, I can use this one because he's no longer there. Uh, so I can throw him under the bus and he could absolutely kill me if he found me one day. Uh, he's a three-star general now. So I was work <laughs> so I was working for him when he was a one-star. And in the past, I use this quite a bit. Um, he had been kind of hurt by Lean Six Sigma. And, uh, and I don't mean hurt like emotionally. I mean, the guy's tough as nails, but, uh, he, he had an improper enterprise implementation. Again, I'm dancing around the words. I want to be real careful. I know him and I admire this guy so much. Uh, he's such a great, he is a great leader of Marines, but he just, he, in the, in the Marine Corps, where I was at, you're required to have a continuous process improvement office that focuses on Lean Six Sigma. That's according to the Department of Def Defense mandate in 2009. I got my hands on it as a major, um, uh, obviously as a, as a major idiot trying to, you know, step up to, you know, when a, the general tells you, uh, when I say, hey, we got eight black belts in this command that just went through this training, we're all excited. And uh, he just looked at us and he said, uh, don't F with my program managers. <laughs> In front of a town hall, though, by the way, this isn't a private meeting. This is in front of tons of people. So we were up against a brick wall because I was trying to implement a project or process improvement office. And the general straight up told us, uh, you know, OK, you can do your thing, but stay out of my way. Because all I asked his right hand man is I said, did he actually say no? Well, he didn't say no. He did. He, you heard what he said. And I said, Roger that, sir. So I had, to, I had to build a project office, which, by the way, that's how I earned my doctorate. That was actually the project that were in my doctorate. It took me three or two and a half years to establish that project office. But what it can feel like to be working where you have bosses that are against you, it feels like you're in. If, if you don't have the intestinal fortitude to push through a um, um, grassroots movement, you're alone and unafraid. And if you're not passionate and willing to persevere and grit, as was Angela Duckworth writes about, if you don't have grit, tenacity, and you know, you're ready for just blood, sweat, and tears, then you better just walk away. I'm going to tell you, because when you get into an environment where you're, you're surrounded by toxic leaders, he wasn't toxic. 
So now I'm switching gears to other folks. He was not toxic. Leadership wise, the dude was one of the greatest leaders I've ever seen. But so when you do have a toxic environment like that, unlike that one, you can feel like you're absolutely just going to, your knees are going to buckle every day. And it's an environment where some people, um, when you're fighting, well, let me just put this, when you're, when you're fighting uphill like that, it's almost impossible to get the resources you need. Um, the support peters out real fast. Classes, you know, have 24 seat availability and you'd see 10 people going at best. You know, so when you don't have that top cover, getting education or training or education is is virtually non-existent. And you say, well, oh, you could fight back. And yeah, I got my doctorate by actually the, the result was there was no, there was a process improvement office uh, established. He himself started submitting projects there. He had all, I ended up winning his buy in by the end. But I'll tell you what. I, I wouldn't take that as a, that's why I don't publish some stupid book on it and tell you, Oh, I found the way to crack the code on getting past even a general right. people who have one success and write a book on it. Yeah. Right. How about, how about zip it until you got a track record? I, I love it when people are like, well, I hit a million dollars on my W2. I work yeah. in sales on this one-time deal. Well, <laughs> what have you proved? Nothing. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Show show me your track record. Is and that's why there's no there's no book on this particular case. I use it as a case study. I spoke at it with at PMI and ASQ though. Um, but uh, it's a um, so yeah. When you brought up that that whole you know kind of getting crapped on by leadership type of thing, it's demoralizing, man. I mean, there's nothing shy of that. I think that's the right word. It's just it's deflating. It's demoralizing. It's it'll take the wind right out of your sails. And and I actually would say for Lean Six Sigma, not as in the person himself or herself, that becomes toxic. Trying to implement right. a CPI office becomes toxic. So not necessarily a toxic culture overall, right. but a but but it does for CPI if that particular portion is toxic. Well, I will tell you what, I've had worse experience like that. That is rough. And I've experienced that in the past. But in those situations, my attitude was like, hey, whatever, dude, that's your bed. Have fun sleeping in it. And I just realized it's probably time for me to move on. I need to start putting my feelers out because I'm unwilling to trade time for money. I don't work to get paid. So I'm not just to call out down. Just to call that out, John, is you don't exactly get that choice in the military. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So so in my context. Right. Um, so that kind of doesn't bother me. That's like whatever, dude, you know, you're the vice president. That's the kind of person you want to be. But because I can't be the kind of person that doesn't improve continuously, I'm going to go look for other employment. Right? What I've had a much harder time with is the leader that tries to add too much value and it is annoying. So in the context of Lean Six Sigma, we might have a project charter that defines, here's what we're doing, right? And also measures and analyzes, right? Um, but you'll, you'll have leaders that are uh, trying to create too much value and they keep jumping in. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? What if we tweaked that? Have we considered that? It's like, just, learn to be a leader and to just, you know, zip it and let these people do their thing and you're going to see benefit and value. But for a team to constantly get pulled in different directions, it's kind of like if you have a, a football team, to use a sports analogy, right? And you have your game plan and you're watching film and then, you know, two or three times a week, the, the owner of the team 
you know, got to be Jerry Jones, comes down to the locker room and is like, now, now, son, you walk, you see how that, he makes that cut right there? Okay, you got to be careful. He's going to pull that on you. Now, what I want you to do, right, and the coach is over here pulling his hair out like, stop, you're undermining everything that we're doing. Just stop having opinions and talking. Um, I found that to be a bigger challenge um, than the other one because if, they, if they're not having it, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give that to you, right? Um, yeah, I, I've had that, that exact problem, and I refer to those people as ideasmen. And I'll, what I'll, I'll have that a lot on LinkedIn, actually. If you are a longtime lifer and, like, you're a CI manager for a company that that's your only breadth of experience, like, that's all they do is look to innovate, and they're not even capable of anything else. So all they do is like look at a process and just pot shot ideas. Well, what if you did this? What if you did that? What if you did this? What if you did that? And that brings us to a conversation we probably don't have time to get into, which is a fantastic offline I had with Mr. Lucas around like trying to automate long before you really assess, analyze, and optimize. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, first of all, that person for uh, the phrase we used in the Marine Corps was to call them the good idea fairy. They come by and they put, they sprinkle their, they sprinkle their good idea fairy yes. dust all over the place and they do it all the time. So the good idea fairy will come out inevitably. So I just, I thought that was funny. That's where it, and you, when you were talking, Jake, by the way, that conversation about the uh, automation, that's what popped in my head. So that's, that's another piece where it, it where another industry thing, but you're, like you said, I won't get too far on it. I'll just briefly explain the context of it is, I mean, you know, when you're walking through the, the, the demaic process, you're characterizing the process during define and measure, you know, maybe part of analyze, and then into analyze, you're looking to improve that process. And then, so you go from the characterizing it, then you're going to, you know, find the root causes, improve it, and then you optimize and then you automate, right? And they jump immediately to automating everything. And when you automate, we, we that is a huge one. Um, but back to the, the one that John had about the, the leadership being overly involved. So one of the things that we do to try, because the topic you, you hit on, John, with the leaders coming in and doing the, the good idea fairy thing, because they don't really understand their role, you, you hit on the topic of when we go into an organization, we first start working with them. I get this question almost every time when we're doing like the statement of work and stuff. Well, where do we start? You know, where should we start at? Maybe having a yellow belt class, you know, whatever. I say, nope, nope. Where we should start is a process owner class and then like a process, you know, champion class, you know, maybe, you know, executive. So, so the process owners know their roles. So the executives and the senior managers, so they know their roles because once we roll this out, and I warn them every time I say, as soon as that first uh, Greenbelt class goes through, they are going to come out of the gates a hundred miles an hour. And when they do, are you ready? And you're not. That's the thing. If you have no idea what your role is, there's that good idea, fairy, doing all that stuff. But if, but it, when they go, when they listen to a class, like a process owner class, so they know how to manage the process, lead the process and own the process, then they'll go. Nah, I have an idea there, but I think I'm gonna wait for the right time, right place. Let's see, maybe that's iteration two down the road. You know, I can let's hold off. They're doing a good job here. Let's get this rolled out and then we'll worry about that piece of it. And that's what a good process owner or champion, whatever role it is you want to have a class for. But the idea is they also, they just as important need to be trained 
and educated. So the most consulting that our organization does, believe it or not, is actually with the leadership. So most of most of our times in training, but when we are consulting, it's actually more coaching the process owners, champions, and sponsors. So that's where we, so when we consult, it's there. Well, um, beautiful tangent. I'm sorry to hit that right at the end of the video, but I am in love with the sentiment and the, my human experience within those roles. Uh, that's, that's been what I see again and again. So just well said. Yeah, yeah I really it. appreciate your uh, attention to how the different roles in the organization function and understand, you know, in, instead of taking the money and run, right, you actually coach your clients. Hey, wait a minute, let me help you win. I know you just want to dump a bunch of humans into this bucket and shake it up and out come a bunch of black belts. Uh, that's not going to serve you well, right? Um, and I appreciate the integrity and, and honesty there um, in your business model. And, you know, we sort of brought up full circle talking about the difference between training and education. And when we talk about some of the barriers that leadership have, it, it, you know, I believe that I have personally, so I'm not judging anybody but myself, but I believe that I personally have sometimes stepped into roles expecting leadership to be competent and maybe even overly competent in their role. Instead of coming to terms with who they actually are and where they actually are in their development. Instead of saying, you know what, Joe got promoted, good for him. He went out, you know, put himself out there. If, if he's not qualified and competent, that's not his fault. He didn't hire himself, right? So how can I coach and train and educate Joe to be better at his role and to understand what his role is and having, you know, honestly, there's, there's a kind of a humility that goes into that, you know, as a subordinate um, to accept leadership where they're at and not just say, you know, well, you're a piece of work, you know, you're making my life difficult. I'd, I should have got promoted. I'd be better at you that, you know, at that than you are. You know, I love that commentary because outside of work, we do this so obviously and naturally. Think of that annoying family member. I'm not going to tell you who it is, <laughs> John, but whoever whoever it is, think about that person in your brain. And I tried to pick a random name, but John's a common one came to my head. So now I'm sticking with it. But yeah, sure. you you immediately go, well, well, you know how he is about those people. So you steer him around those conversations and you go, oh, you know, well, he's a little lazy when it comes to cleaning up after dinner. So you steer around them and you immediately accept that person, even if it bothers you to your soul, that where they're at, where their limitations are, where they need development and work with them from that point. And some reason we can't bring that to work. Yeah, especially, I think, with upward coaching, you know. Like for the people that report to me, that's a default behavior for me, right? Because I, I can't use them, right? If I don't know what their skills and competencies are, right? And attributes. Um, we had mentioned the other week, if you haven't read it, Dr. Luke, uh, I think it's called The Attributes. And it's written by a um, naval officer who was in charge of SEAL training. And, uh, SEALs were having trouble graduating. These are, you know, combat veterans. And so Brass ordered an investigation and the results became the book. And, and 
his conclusion was there's a difference between skill and attributes. Um, and the way that he wrote the book and the 25 attributes he highlights, I thought was really helpful. I enjoyed the book. Um, but when it comes to my boss, I don't have to know those, right? Or maybe, maybe I do, maybe I'm wrong about that, right? Um, so it's, it's an asymmetrical relationship, you know, because of the power differential. But in my experience, you know, it, it's easy for us to work with our subordinates because we don't expect them to be at our level. It's more difficult to work with an incompetent or ignorant boss because we expect them to be above beyond our level. Well, one of the things that, you know, you know, back to back to the whole leadership thing, too, uh, because I was, I was going to give you one pet peeve that kind of ties in with this from not, pet peeve may be the wrong word. I, I don't know. Whatever. We can search for the, the better word or we can move on with the, the comment is when we actually do get somebody and we'll say sometimes that the, the overzealous leaders, they'll put their people into our training and expect them to come out as green belts. We'll say black belts because that's obviously a lot more complex. But but mind you, during that entire engagement, the few weeks that we're in the training, they have meetings, they that they're, oh, I'm sorry, I got to go. And, you know, I know we're talking about hypothesis testing here. And, and right now we're on, you know, one proportion and two proportion testing, but yet I'm going to step out for an hour. Oh, my boss says that I can't miss this meeting and I've got to be here. And you go, okay, there went Kai Square. Now we're going to move on and we're going to be talking about, you know, DOE. And you were gone for half of that too. And that happens to us probably, I would say over, well, nine, how about 95% confidence? It happens 95% of the time or more because it does. We, so I feel terrible for these students who are in our class trying to even get, even get the uh, academic portion of it to get the instruction portion of it, let alone the education, just trying to get the instruction. And yet they aren't given a week. Or if you're going to dedicate the three weeks or two or whatever year it is for your next, there's modular levels, whatever. So the 120 to 160 hours or whatever. Leaders, if you're listening to this right now, you need to let your people go for a week. I don't care what it takes. If you want to add value to your employee and you're going to send them to training and you're going to invest, you know, thousands of dollars into them as you should, right? I, I mean, I think it's a beautiful thing, but you know, you're doing a great thing, back off and protect them. And I'll tell you, I'm going to, I'm waving my finger even in this video, back off. You need to give them space, let them train. We get this all the time with uh, my boss needs me here. My boss needs me here. I need to be in this meeting. Guess what? That class is not some joke. Green belt and black belt, I can tell you if you're starting to pull them out in meetings, I challenge you leaders, why don't you come take our course and try to take a black belt and be, and be uh, you know, have intermittent meetings and stuff. It'll ruin it. You're going to lose yeah. a lot of logic and concepts. So I just kind of was putting a challenge out there for leadership. Back off your people. If they're training, let them train. Yeah, your behavior is is it your behavior is essentially stating you don't value the training, right? If so, yeah, you we, wouldn't put other things in. Yep, spot on, right? We do what we value. Right? I had to I had to put that out there from from the perspective of the the trainers that are out there in the world that are going. Yes, Luke, thanks for saying that in a public forum because I am so tired, and it's not for me. I am defending the students. 
because they're there and they're wide-eyed and want to be there and learn everything they can. And yet, you know, 10, 15% of their time is taken up by freaking, I'm going to say it, I'm piss poor planning because you couldn't better plan your meetings and you couldn't better plan your, your week to not have one person. Mm. Yeah. But I really, really need Jake to go over his TPS report with me this afternoon. But, oh God, to go oh. fill out a CI report instead of taking a class. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm, I'm just, gonna pull I'm just you being... out of black belt training so that you can review your, uh, 230 entry spreadsheet on your CI projects. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm being real with you. That's the most real thing I can say here. So leaders that are listening, if I can impact even a few people, just let your people be. That's it. You invest in them. I know you love them. I know you care about them. Let them be. For your Good audio... For the audio only listeners, just let me put in real quick that when the good doctor goes, ch -ch -ch -ch, the good idea fairy looks like Salt Bay. That's what he's doing with his hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and when he's, uh, you know, addressing the leadership, he's got a nice Uncle Sam pose. So if you want to know if he's finger pointing and wagging, that's a good vision. For my Marine Corps friends, put it this way, a knife handed. That's how we point in the Marine Corps is your knife hand. So I point with a knife hand. Well, all right. Dr. Luke, thank you for sharing with us today and for that word of wisdom. CEO, founder of Value Added 616 and providing really, I would say, cutting edge green belt and black belt training. Um, and I like the fact that you specialize in something other than manufacturing because there's a lot of value to be had in the services industry and government. Please, dear God, fix our government. Um, so Working on it. How can, uh, how can folks get in touch with you? So, I mean, you can go to our website at uh, va616.com, which is victoralpha616.com, or look me up, Dr. Luke Chesler on LinkedIn, and, you know, you, you can get, get a hold of us pretty easily. It's a seven to 10-day lead time on LinkedIn, just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, if you call the number that's on the website or on LinkedIn, that goes to the business phone and that'll be picked up immediately. So there you go. I wouldn't just LinkedIn message me. How about that? All right, Dr. Luke, thank you for joining us. This is John Thacker and Jake Carroll on Equality Podcast signing off. Bye, everybody. Check out. Thank you, guys. <laughs>